Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 16th, 2018, and that happens to be the 12th anniversary to the day of the release of the first episode of Econ Talk, which was a conversation about Don Cox and parenting. Uh, on parenting, I know some of you have been listening since that first episode. Others, crazy ones of you, have gone back and listened from the beginning, uh, which blows me away. And I want to thank all of you for listening, even if this is your first uh, episode. Uh, if you do go back to the beginning, uh, 12 years, 600-plus episodes ago, uh, you'll notice that my interview style has changed over the years. Uh, I hope for the better, but uh, I'm not the best judge of that. My guest today is Vincent Rajkumar of the Mayo Clinic, where he specializes in myeloma, which is a blood cancer. He's currently the editor-in-chief of Blood Cancer Journal and an associate editor at the European Journal of Hematology. Vincent, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks so much for having me, Ross. Our topic today is the price of cancer drugs. We're going to talk about two papers you've written, one with Jean-Luc Rousseau and the other with Mustakim Siddiqui. We'll put up links to those. Uh, one of those papers is from the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. The other is from a journal with, well, I think, my fa- maybe my favorite name of any journal. It's just called Blood. Is that That's the right name, right? Just that is blood. Correct. It's awesome. Uh, but first, a little background. I want to hear a little bit about your specialty and uh, and myeloma. What is myeloma and how prevalent is it? Uh, my specialty is multiple myeloma. Myeloma is a cancer of uh, plasma cells. These are the cells that normally help us fight infection. They make antibodies. When they become cancerous, uh, the condition is called multiple myeloma. Um, multiple myeloma is a cancer that destroys bone, causes uh, low blood counts, kidney failure, and uh, increased risk of infections. It affects probably around 25 to 30,000 Americans each year. And um, the disease has seen a remarkable transformation in terms of new treatment options over the last 10 to 15 years. And so what was once a disease that people died an average of three years uh, to four years is now something that patients can expect to live uh, seven to 10 years or longer. Does it strike folks uh, at any particular age? It's a disease of elderly patients. Uh, most commonly it affects patients over the age of 65. Um, but But you do see about 4 or 5% of patients less than 40 being diagnosed uh, with the disease. And it's how is it treated, right? What is the state of the art of treatment right now? Uh, myeloma is treated usually with about four cycles of uh, chemotherapy. That's about four months of chemotherapy. And then uh, typically patients undergo a autologous stem cell transplantation with their own stem cells. And then we give uh, some form of maintenance therapy with a pill. Um, and, um, you know, that goes on until the disease becomes refractory. What does when that mean? What is refractory? That mean? means refractory means sooner or later, the cancer becomes 
smart enough to outwit the chemotherapy and it starts coming back. And then we go to um, a second line regimen and a third line regimen. It's a cancer that comes and goes and patients will have multiple relapses and remissions with each remission becoming shorter than the previous one. And what are the symptoms? Usually patients, uh, about two-thirds of patients present with bone pain because the disease commonly goes to the bones of the body. Uh, they may get fractures of the back or fractures of the arms or legs uh, spontaneously sometimes. And uh, other patients can present with just fatigue from anemia or um, acute renal failure or kidney failure, and they uh, come into the emergency room with a high calcium kidney failure. So the presentations can be myriad. It can also present with infections, and then you uh, make the diagnosis in the hospital. So the, the drug part of this, um, yes. walk me through a patient who has, let's say, some of those issues, back pain or a broken a fracture of some kind. A diagnosis is made that it's myeloma. Walk me through again. You gave us a, a little bit of it. Give us again, where do the drugs come into that from starting at that first diagnosis? Well, uh, when a newly diagnosed patient comes in, the first question after we verify the diagnosis is, um, is um, you know, is, is the patient a candidate for transplantation or not? Um, transplant meaning we take stem cells from the patient, give very high doses of chemo, and put the stem cells back to rescue the bone marrow. Um, patients who are candidates for transplant, our approach is we start them on a chemotherapy regimen, typically it consists of uh, three drugs, bortezomib, which is marketed under the name of Velcade, uh, lenalidomide, marketed under the trade name of Revlimid, and dexamethasone. So VRD, Velcade, Revlimid, dexamethasone is what we use. We give that treatment for about four months. The transplant process takes another two months. So that's six months right there, four months of chemo, two months for the transplant. And then we... Uh, put them on maintenance uh, therapy with just Revlimid, one, pi one pill a day, three weeks on, one week off. And they take that as long as it works. Typically, that works for about three to four years. So how much does that pill cost, Revlimid? That costs right now um, probably fifteen to $15,000 a month. 15000 a month for just the Revlimid? 180000 a year for yeah. three to four years. Correct. Uh, that's just the Revlimid. There's two that's others the, in the cocktail you mentioned, right? The two others in the cocktail are, are uh, done for the first four months. How much do they cost? Well, I think uh, right now you could probably get Velcade for about $5,000 a month. Bargain. Yes. So the bottom line is... Um, Let's make the cheeriest story. What's the alternative? Is the alternative death? The alternative is death. How long will that take? Uh, prior to the arrival of uh, Revlimid and Velcade, uh, myeloma patients were alive only for about three to four years. Now, these drugs are great because they have doubled the survival. So they're definitely very important, but they come at this high price in terms of uh, actual financial cost. Um, so if I'm, let's take the cheeriest, um, story, I'll tell you, 
what I mean by cheery is that a 65-year-old patient comes in, a young myeloma sufferer, and they find out they have myeloma. Bad news, their life expectancy is now three to four years. The good news is, is that they can make that six to eight years if they spend or someone spends for them something on the order of, I'm guessing, three quarters of a million dollars, maybe a little bit more. Right. In the United States. In the In United States. States. It would be cheaper. Yeah. Uh, so you could move. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but most uh, – I'm pretty confident that most of the patients who are spending that kind of money aren't spending their own money. They're spending uh, Medicare, right, or an insurer. Absolutely. And what's an old patient who gets myeloma? 80? Yes. Uh, patients over the age of 70 with myeloma are not treated with transplant, um, but they are given VRD. Instead of four months, we give them about one year of the three-drug combination. And then we put them on Revlimid uh, as maintenance. I was going to say something that's probably not in good taste, but if you gave them the choice of selling it on the street, of course, you can't sell it on the street. That's why it's a joke and not funny. But um, an 80-year-old person who gets uh, myeloma uh, would would have had – would they still have in the absence of treatment a three- to four-year? Or is it more like – maybe it was a little higher for the 65-year-old. Yes. Patients uh, who are eligible for transplant live uh, longer than patients who are not. Um, just because of the other comorbidities and, and the effect of the transplant itself. Sure. Um, but survival has improved for all patients with myeloma. So the challenge here, we're going to get into some of the, the details. You have a lot of interesting proposals of what might be done about these high prices. And, and we're going to talk, before we do that, we're going to talk about um, why they're so high, because they're ex- extremely high. Um, but it does raise you know, the interesting question that there are a lot of people who would certainly not pay for the treatment out of their own pocket, either because they literally couldn't, they don't have the money, or they'd rather not do so. They'd rather leave that money to their children. So what we've done as a society, and I say that as a society because this is not a market solution. It's a very strange world that we'll be exploring in this conversation, this world of drug pricing is such that society has some group, some emergent force has created a world where elderly people are taking enormous sums of of money from the next generation in order to live a little bit longer. And um, there's something glorious and miraculous and wonderful about that. There's something, the part that's hard for an economist is to say, well, Maybe there's a more effective use of that money that would make life even better. Uh, so that's the challenge. That's sort of the philosophical question, I think, that we should have in the back of our mind. Do you want to comment on that before we go into the details? Yeah, I wouldn't think of it like that, Russ, because you're a doctor. <laughs> no, not, not only that, I think you have to think of the whole spectrum of cancers. If the high cost of myeloma therapy was the only problem we had, that would be you could be right in saying, like, why are we spending only on myeloma like this? Uh, and it's it's not. I mean, what's happening is there are many cancers that affect young people, younger patients. Uh, cancer 
affects all ages. And um, Absolutely. whatever cancer drug has been introduced in the last few years, all of them are priced at more than 100000 a, a, a year. Every one of the new cancer drugs in the last several years is $100,000 a year or more. So as a society, we are paying for all ages, for all of us. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. Everyone. Actually, we're on the same page there. I didn't mean to suggest that, that somehow the elderly uh, didn't deserve an extra couple of years. And certainly the case that younger people, it it's, could be decades of longer life. It's a wonderful thing. And, and these innovations are extraordinary. Uh, the, the question is why the price is so high and whether uh, the, the real economist question is, is there a way to generate the creativity and innovation of the pharmaceutical industry without requiring that level of compensation for their innovation? Right. But you're right in the sense that the normal market forces that um, affect the cost of any product are absent here because if you take a look at India – it's mostly a country of out-of-pocket medical care. So if the price of the drugs is very high, patients simply will not take the drug because they cannot afford it. And um, there is no, most 99, 90% of the population probably is not insured. So the cost reflects what people can actually pay for. So... That's not here because insurance is paying or Medicare is paying. So the costs then go up, um, you know, to the level that the whole of society and market can bear rather than just what individuals can manage out of their salaries. But that conclusion, and you said it very well, what, what the whole of society can bear rather than what the individual could bear is, is so much more complicated than that sentence would suggest. Because we've decided – it's the wrong verb. It has happened that a set of incentives, compensation, subsidies, restrictions are in place that allow the price of that drug to be as high as it is in the United States. Correct. And, and that's what's, I think, so so fascinating uh, about – about what we're we're discussing, the so let's talk about some of that. Uh, Absolutely. What are you know somebody you know when people say uh, old wine is more expensive than new wine, they people often say, well, that's because people it it, it tastes better and people will pay for it and it's more valuable. And as an economist, I always respond, well, that would only lead to a higher price if in fact. It costs more to produce older wine, which, of course, it does. You have to forego the income that you would have from selling the wine today. You have to leave it in the barrel, leave it in the uh, cask. And um, it's that cost which drives the price combined with the demand side. So when people hear the cancer drugs are, well, of course, they're expensive. It's really valuable. They're really important. They are. But you only have to pay more in, in a market system when the costs are also higher. And here the cost of being higher is, is really complicated. So talk about some of the factors uh, that – that, or do you have a monopoly? That would be the other way you can get a, <laughs> a high price even though the costs are low because uh, there's no competition to drive the price down to the competitive level. So talk about those both those factors, the cost side and the regulation side that gives uh, producers something of a monopoly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll just go through, you know, the main reasons why I think uh, cancer drugs, um, especially, and prescription gen- drugs in general cost so high. Some of these are um, worldwide phenomenon. Some of these are really unique to the United States. Um, but even those that are unique to the U.S. have an impact beyond the U.S. and it affects prices around the world and access around the world as well. So I'll just um, go through the list here uh, really quickly. This is uh, from the paper that uh, Jean-Luc Caruso and I wrote in Blood. Um, I think the main thing is it does cost a lot of money to bring a new drug to the market. I mean, people have estimated it uh, from $750 million to uh, several billion dollars to bring a new uh, drug to the market. And the costs are so high because... For cancer, you need to show um, most of the time in a large randomized control trial where you take a large number of patients, half of them get the drug, half don't, and you have to give it and show that patients actually live longer or at least some surrogate endpoint is improved. And um, that's hard threshold because uh, many drugs are simply not active. They look promising, but they fail that test. And to do a trial like that costs a lot of money. So companies, if they have a good drug, rather than doing one trial, they may do two or three trials just to make sure that at least one of them succeeds. So the high, And there are so many regulatory barriers and differences between what the FDA will accept as an endpoint for the U.S. to get a new drug approved versus Europe. And so these companies have to sometimes make the trials larger to satisfy one regulatory body versus the other and so on. So it's just very expensive to develop a new drug. So I grant that, that if you're going to invest in such a high risk proposition, you should have some way of making that money back. Um, So a high cost, a reasonably high cost is, is something that they need as a incentive to, to develop these drugs and take on the risks and challenges of, of developing a new cancer drug. Um, the other main factor uh, is is that most cancers are not curable. And so if, for example, in multiple myeloma, you know, when Velcade and Revlimid stop working, um, then you try the next one, which will be daratumumab. Well, that will cost $100,000 to $200,000 a year. And if that stops working, you will try carfilzomib and you will try elotuzumab and panabinostat and pomalidomide. And each of these drugs is really a virtual monopoly. Even though we have seven drugs for myeloma, I cannot simply say, oh, I have seven drugs, so therefore there's competition. There isn't, since patients will have to try Velcade and Revlimid and Carfilzomib and Daratumumab and so on. So the point, being, the point being that once the thir- I've used the first three and now the fourth one's in the mix, I can't, the first one doesn't compete with it anymore because I can't use it. Yeah, exactly. So so really, each drug is a virtual monopoly where the government says you can sell it and only you can sell it for the next seven, 10 years. And 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 it's not like the you know, if if only Apple made the iPhone and, and we had no other cell phone, we could still probably live without a cell phone. But here are cancer patients are going to die without the treatment and we have said you can have this drug, but only this company will make it for the next seven, ten years. And so, 
whatever price they say we have to give or else you don't have the luxury of saying I'll, I'll choose a competitor's product. And just to clarify, because so, this is a subtle point, but I'm just curious about it. it. You say that after I've used the first three, I go to the fourth one. I'm very impressed by the that you can remember them all, by the way. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether that's common. I bet you can reel off about 10 more, but uh, it's, it's, um, they're, they're not easy to remember. But the fourth one is the fourth one because you've used the first three and they're not working anymore, right? Correct. But I could, could I start with the fourth one? You is could start with the fourth one, but then you will go to the first one. I know, but the R one, the, what was the R one? Revlimid. Is Revlimid always the first one? Do some people start with the fourth one? So usually people start with uh, both Belcade, Revlimid, and Dex, and then when that stops working, they will go to Daratumumab and probably some other two drugs together and so on. But the point is that if you have uh, six or seven drugs, and we use actually all of them in combination, so if you use one, two, three, you'll go to four, five, six, then you might go to two, one, three, and then you might go to drug one, four, five, and you try all kinds of combinations but you don't usually give up and say, okay, myeloma is res- not responding to BRD, so I give up. You actually try each drug before you say nothing's working. In essence, then each drug is something that patients need. But I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's technically a monopoly and in in, in not, not even maybe in practice, but the, because there is some competition. But the problem is, is that Competition works because the customer wants the good and has multiple places to get it. Here, it's true there might be different mixes. Let's make it simple. Let's say the big three, uh, RVD, is that the right? Are those the right initials? Yes. So the yes. big, let's say the big three are, are they're 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 150. Actually, I know they're more. Some of them are more. So let's just say they they're 250 thousand a year each. So if I go through that cocktail, I'm going to spend a, certain, a very large amount of money. If there were a competitor, there were three or four others that were a thousand each instead of two hundred and fifty thousand. That that triplet might not be the standard triplet. So they do have to compete against the other ones. The real question is, and this is what I found so, so one of the things I found so surprising about the market, so-called market, is that if a new drug comes along and, and it works a tiny amount better, it still could be given that monopoly privilege. And by the monopoly privilege here, I'm not talking about the fact that it's going to be a, a choice of, of cancer patients and, and physicians. It, it gets the monopoly privilege that no one else can market that drug. And right. it, it'll still get that FDA approval and get the up to, let's say, 7 to 10, because it depends on when it got introduced, how long the clinical trials took, how long the approval took. But it's still going to have a... a monopoly on that formulation for seven to 10 years, even if it barely improves the quality of life, not the quality, the quantity of life. Is that correct? That is correct. And what, what will happen is that um, if you, you can see it with um, many instances, in, in including myeloma, as well as with older drugs, as you, you know, seven, 10 years go by and let's say Velcade is old news. You still will have to use Velcade, but the first choice you might go with the newest drug, which is even more expensive, because by then drug companies can show the newer drug is slightly better or they might use a trial with the slightly biased design to show that the new drug is better. 
or you can do continuing medical education lectures and advisory boards and convince a lot of experts that new drugs are better than the old one. So you would think that the prices would go down as these drugs are becoming generic, but by the drug, by the time drugs become generic, there is another sheriff in town, a new drug comes along, and that's the one that people are using, and now that one's now going to have monopoly for seven, ten years. This happened with the Matinib. This has happened with uh, now. It's happening right now as we speak with uh, Belcade. So, the, I, I mean, I, I clearly a big problem is that there's there's really in a monopoly. I always say even water will be expensive. If if it's a life saving monopoly that you have control over, then then you you are the person who has the uh, you you command. Um, you command whatever price you think your drug is worth. And, and that's, rea- that's the reality of what's happening. And so it, that's the second big factor, which is that, you know, there is some, to some extent, a monopolistic or an oligopolistic system. We had a very interesting episode with Robin Feldman talking about the ways that pharmaceutical companies keep out generics, postpone generics. Yes. Uh, and, and it's a very, it's an important issue. But I think the, the inherent issue... Uh, that you're talking about is that's important is in particular is this issue of the, the old drug, right? So you have this drug that gets developed. It stays on patent for se- for seven to 10 years, and then it's off patent and it should fall in price and it probably will fall in price, but, but it doesn't get the market share that it would normally get in a typical market because there's a new alternative that is under patent that's again $250,000 a year and it is it's a little bit better than the than the generic version of Velcrid or whatever it's called. So normally people would say, well, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind living an extra and this can be mo- a month in tr- clinical trials, right? It's, we're not talking about years. I would like to live an extra month, but I'm not sure I w- I'm willing to spend 250,000 extra for that extra month. Would it be great just to go use the old one? And the answer is, is that you're, what you're suggesting is their cultural and I assume legal encouragement of the medical profession to always upgrade, even if the value of that gain is very small relative to the price. Because doctors generally don't want to take on um, the value proposition. They're, they're constantly like, if this is better, then that's what I'm going to recommend to the patient, uh, you know, forget the cost. I notice they do that even when the patient pays the cost, and the patient is often not in the habit of saying, well, wait a minute, which of these <laughs> is more expensive, and is it worth it? That question is so alien in our world of subsidized medical care that when you're confronting it, which which I've done, either for lots of reasons in my own life or my parents, uh, people – they treat you really strangely, right? They say, what do you mean? Now, example, I had to do – I had a uh, – I still have it. I have a little skin tag on my eyelid, and my dermatologist said, you should probably get that removed, but I'm not so comfortable doing it. Why don't you get a get a surgeon to do it? Okay, great. So I have a high deductible. I have a health savings account. I called three or four of the surgeons she recommended. Most of them, their office couldn't tell me what it was going to cost. <laughs> they, they, they viewed that as – a they, they were taken aback by the question, and I think that's an extraordinary feature of the current medical landscape. That's correct. 
So I'll move to the third reason. I mean, I think the high cost of drug development, the existence of a monopoly and the ability to sustain that monopoly by, you know, either delaying generics or by um, bringing in new drugs and making the old drugs old news is are two big reasons. But the third one is that we do we are dealing with a vulnerable population. These are patients and family members who are willing to pay any costs to save a life. And um, like you said, they are, uh, it's not like a luxury that you can live without. I, I mean, we don't, we are not talking about BMW versus, you know, uh, 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 Honda Accord, my, Honda my fine Accord. car. Exactly. <laughs> here, here you're talking about, hey, doc, what is the best treatment? And, and we'll somehow find a way. I've had so many patients everywhere that would say, like, don't tell me the, the you know, the, the least expensive way to do it. It's, it's like, what is the best? That's what, what would you do? What would you do if money was not a concern? Right, sure. Would you do? And uh, particularly well-insured patients, <laughs> that is not even a question because it really doesn't cost them different to oh. choose the best versus the, the less expensive one. So uh, patients are willing to pay very high costs, even for marginal improvements. If you can, if you say like, you know, you could, your mom could live six months more if they tried this regimen versus that. I mean, they would be willing to sell their house to get that six months. So, um, it's and, that's, and that's a beautiful that's a beautiful thing, right? The 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 more complicated issue is is, and I'm going to say something here, somewhat um, disturbing, and, and I'd like you to weigh in on it. Sometimes doctors have an incentive to provide that more that higher quote higher quality treatment. Regardless of the trade-offs, not just for the money side, but also there's quality of life. You're going to be eager sometimes to to suggest chemotherapy or other things that they may extend life six months, but they might not be a very good six months. They may require a lot of pain and suffering. It doesn't always work, uh, but there's sometimes financial incentives for doctors to be more aggressive. Is that true? Yes. I mean, you've just hit the fourth reason why these drugs are expensive. <laughs> Our system is rewards doctors more for the more expensive treatment. Now, not all doctors, some. Um, if you're employed in a fixed salary position, um, then you're going to get the same salary regardless of what treatment you give to patients. But um, oncologists in, uh, in certain practices, in probably more than half the oncologists in the country, um, administer chemotherapy in their own offices in a chemotherapy suite. So they are basically functioning both as the person who's recommending the chemo as well as the person who's administering the chemo, uh, buying and administering chemo. So Medicare Part B reimbursement for chemotherapy drugs that are administered in doctor's offices, that's these intravenous drugs, parenteral drugs, subcutaneous drugs, they uh, can ask for an average sales price plus 6% from Medicare. And, um, and so what happens is that if you have a choice between Taxol and Abraxane, which is a newer version of Taxol, which you could say is a toss-up in terms of efficacy, Taxol you would get 6% of 600, Abraxane you might get 6% of 6,000. Now, my numbers might be off, but, but that's, you can see I get how... the idea, yeah. How easy it is for 
if I have like four brand new CME lectures from various experts saying that, you know, a Braxane has got less side effects than Taxol or a Braxane has got, you know, this study, there was like 10% more response rate than, than Taxol. It's so easy for physicians to want to do the right thing, but you don't want to have a conflict where very, let's say very, very few physicians would use the financial incentive to give it. But the problem with conflicts of interest is always not whether there is a conflict or not. It's just that you don't know who is influenced and who isn't. Yeah, explain that. And by the way, CME is continuing medical education. You're talking about a situation where a, a doctor wants to find out about new treatments, shows up at a conference, and there's uh, someone who's going to make the case that this new drug is the one to to always choose. But why do you say that it's a question of, who, of where the conflict is? Explain that. No. Uh, so financial conflicts of interest where you say, like, you know, a doctor can make more money by giving the more expensive chemo. Okay. If I'm a doctor, I'll be upset. And I will say, no, I'll never do that. I'm a, I'm a good doctor. And I will always do whatever is best for the patient. And I will not give a drug, uh, a more expensive version of the drug, just because I can get more money in return. But that um, would be, that would be a horrible thought. Yeah. You, I'd be true of you, but uh, we have tens of thousands of doctors in the U.S. And, and how can we be sure that every one of them is fine or what per- proportion of them are like that and who is who i mean conflicts of interest are always about the fact that we don't know who is conflicted and who's not a patient has no way of knowing so what you mean by that is that if i'm sitting in the the doctor's office and i say doctor what do you, what do you recommend and i don't know the history of this doctor's cme attendance and when a drug rep recently took that doctor out to dinner and whether they're running the chemo out of their own office and whether they're getting right. That's what you're suggesting is that is the important. Uh, that's the no, ignorance that I, that is a patient. Not only that, I mean, the pay, it's, it's not like that. It's more that even the doctor may not be aware. It's all subtle. Yeah. You know, when there are financial conflicts, it's, it's very hard uh, that it's not conscious often. When there is a huge financial incentive, um, it's very, very, very hard. I mean, there have been some studies that have been done where generally doctors don't administer chemo when when you don't need chemo, um, but they do tend to administer more expensive chemo uh, if there is a choice between two. And that was a study we cited in the Siddiqui paper. Um, subsequently, I've heard of other um, uh, obs- observations uh, i don't have references for that where insurance companies have documented uh, you know changes in practice that occur based on just reimbursement of drugs um, between you know a, a, a cheap drug and a more expensive version of the same one it's just that we should have a system where this is not doctors are not put in that position where you know the choice of the drug you use will change your take home salary that's yeah, well, not that, a position that any physician should be in because no one's a saint, no one's immune from temptation, and it's a subconscious thing. No, well, self-deception is very powerful. We talk about it a lot on this program, and those kind of uh, – I would call it – I think I would call it non-conscious. It's, 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 it's a mix of subconscious, unconscious. Uh, it, it's the environment. After a while, you start to convince yourself that, of course, exactly. this is the right thing to do. This is – 
And this is true for people who come to ins- to tell you whether you need waterproofing of your of your basement as well. They're not bad yes. people. Uh, but when the waterproofer comes to my house, I know he's got an incentive to recommend waterproofing. So I'm a little bit skeptical, uh, yes. well, a lot skeptical often. And when it's the doctor, we have this romance earned mostly that that they're never going to do the wrong thing. They're always going to try to help me. And it's it's not a suggestion. I think this is really important. It's not a suggestion that you administer chemotherapy to someone who doesn't have cancer. It's that you administer chemotherapy that, say, has terrible side effects that this person is unlikely to to enjoy those extra months. But you convince yourself that that's better than doing nothing. And most of the time it will be. Many times it will be, whether it's a question of the bet, the improved uh, amount, but but. The improved, excuse me, efficacy might be it might be small, but it's still an improvement. We're not you're not suggesting, of course, this does happen, but you're not suggesting that it's a big problem that people fraudulently make claims to these drugs. Just that all these things push people in the direction of the more expensive. Correct, correct. It's just one other pressure point in the direction of the more expensive drug. So this raises the question, which is a bizarre question: Why are these drugs so cheap? And, and I want to make it clear, you corrected me earlier, and I, it's important to remind listeners, we've been talking about myeloma as an example. But this is a problem across all cancers, all drugs. They're all in the six-figure a year or higher. You mentioned that in passing, but this is not a myeloma problem. This is Correct. a general problem that – and it's not 100,000. Some of them, I think you said, are 300,000 a year to administer. So – and I, I just want to say also in passing, people ask me, what, you know, what about – I don't know how to pronounce his name, Martin Shkreli. The, he just recently got sentenced to prison, but he was uh, condemned publicly before he was uh, convicted of, of fraud, I think is his crime, for raising the price of certain drugs of companies he got a hold of. And he jacked the prices up. People would say to me, uh, oh, is that, there's your market, your free market working. And I always <laughs> – yeah, as if as if before he came along, uh, it was um, it was a perfect world. Now he's gone and ruined it. He's he's the first greedy pharmaceutical manufacturer, and that's silly. And of course, it's silly for a hundred reasons. One of which is, as we were talking about, it's not a market price. But the the real puzzle is he kind of, in a way he he provided not in a way he provided a service. He illuminated not was not his goal. He illuminated the. I would call it the intellectual bankruptcy of the way that this so-called market works, or at least how this market is distorted. And the fundamental part we didn't, you, you mentioned in passing is that a lot of these drugs are paid for, say, by the government. And as you point out in your articles, Medicare is not allowed to negotiate. <laughs> now, I generally would say that's a good thing. I don't want the government determining the profit margin of a of a company. It's a weird thing for the government to negotiate over price. There's a potential for corruption there. But if you're going to pay for it every penny, <laughs> uh, you got to have somebody negotiating. Otherwise, the taxpayers are, are the ones who would like to negotiate. And they're not allowed to, and it's it's a messed up system. But it raises the question of why don't they charge more? Why don't they just double all the prices? What stops them? In a normal world, the answer would be, well, people won't pay for it. Now, there's a lot of reason that they would pay for it in the current world, the way it's structured. What stops them? Um, so this is this is just absolutely outstanding, what you just asked, because I've thought about it. Um, you Do you know that Martin Shkreli 
the drug he raised the price of, um, which is Daraprim. He raised it from a dollar fifty to I think seven hundred or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was seven hundred fifty or something. Yeah, and that that drug is still selling for the same price. It's still <laughs> selling for four thousand dollars a month. Okay, because that is legal, and um, he's going to jail for something else. Yeah, it's securities fraud or something, yeah. but not for this thing because what he did is legal, and it's legal because tomorrow I could if I'm selling Macintosh. Uh, MacBook Pros. I mean, tomorrow Apple could sell it for a hundred thousand a computer, and and that's legal. But that's okay because I don't need to buy the Macintosh. I can buy a hundred other computers. But what he's doing is he's the only one selling Daraprim, and he can raise it to that level. Um, normally, it would be easy for a hundred companies to come in, make iPhones and iPhone cases and whatnot. But it's not so easy to get into the drug market. To tomorrow for like a hundred other companies to come and make Daraprim. Um, so the drug is still priced so high. This is something that in a different level is done by all companies uh, working in the cancer industry. If you look at the price of drugs, they steadily go up. The difference is they know that the only thing stopping them or preventing them is outrage. Um, they are clever. They're not like Martin Shkreli raising the price overnight by 5,000%. They would raise it 10% every single year. And I made a comment recently, 10% a year of a $15,000 drug is more than 5,000% of a $1.50 drug in absolute dollar money. <laughs> but it okay, seems, so but it's like you boil the frog slowly and the frog doesn't notice. Yeah. Yes. And that's <laughs> the way they do it. Tomorrow they could raise the price to a hundred thousand of Revlimid or you know a hundred thousand per month of uh, of Velcade, but they don't do it because then outrage will happen. And uh, what's better is to increase the price five, ten percent a year, ten percent, fifteen percent a year, or something like that, so no one notices. This has happened with the Melphalan for myeloma. This has happened with Revlimid, with Velcade. It's happened in all other cancer drugs with Gleevec. Uh, it's happened with insulin. It's it's widespread. This is not something unique to Martin Shkreli. So why is this happening? Well, because they can. And the normal market barriers, which is competition, is not there. So they have monopoly protection for the large part. They can increase the price and we have a system where we said, as you mentioned, Medicare cannot negotiate the price of Part D drugs. So what happens is that we passed a law saying that Medicare will buy and provide for its citizens free drugs that are under the Part D program. But at the same time, Medicare will have to pay the pharmaceutical company whatever money they say their drug is worth. Now, that's a system for from that point onwards, the cost of drugs has gone up faster than it did before that. Seems like a design flaw. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, of course, if you're in the industry, it's a feature, not a bug. And if, also, I want to add, I just checked your Twitter feed to verify it. You right now at least have a your pinned tweet starts off with the observation that this is not – the blaming of pharma. They're just no. following their – now, I'm going to 
put a footnote to that, but I, I would agree in general with your point that these are the incentives that have been put in place. So it's not surprising that that they respond accordingly. Exactly. I mean, they have a they they have a solution that is not available to BlackBerry or mm-hmm. uh, the iPhone, which is I can just don't innovate at all. I'll keep the same old iPhone. I'll just increase the price every year. And I can meet all my targets. Now, my footnote is, is that when that Medicare Part D regulation was put in place, I think you said it, I think you wrote that it passed in in the middle of the night, literally. Correct. Um, The farm industry wasn't just standing off on the side saying, I hope this turns out well. (laughs) They did have some, I assume, influence on the um, on that vote and structure of that plan, and that's the uh, that's the crony side of crony capitalism, and it's a terrible thing. Um, the, the the bright side, unlike the financial sector, so I like to make the point that the financial sector, because they socialize their losses and make me pay for them uh, when they go bankrupt, they get bailed out with my money as a taxpayer. So they basically they have access to my checking account. And they act accordingly, <laughs> which is not surprising. Uh, and similarly, the pharmaceutical industry has a- access to especially old people's checking accounts, uh, not their checking accounts, their bodies. Uh, and so the, the rest of us are paying for those checking through taxes are paying for those very high prices that don't have any market uh, restraint on them. And uh, that's a that's a great deal. You know, if you can get that, that's nice work. If you can get it, it's it's a money machine. Yeah. And then there are a couple other things also, Russ, uh, that are important. Um, One other main factor in the U.S. is that we do not take value into account when the drug is approved. So, and we'll talk about it when we talk about the solutions. But uh, in the U.S., the FDA approves drugs just simply based on have, have they shown safety and have they shown clinical benefit? Clinical benefit and safety is what we are looking for. Um, and they don't make a judgment on you prolong life by one week, and therefore you cannot sell the drug for 100000 a year. You prolong life by five years, therefore you can. Or they don't make any judgment on what is a drug worth. But they simply have to make a judgment. Has the drug demonstrated safety and efficacy? And if it does, then it's approved. In most other countries, there is a second step, which is what does it add in terms of value? And, uh, and that allows uh, uh, the pricing to be proportional to what is provided in terms of value so that somebody cannot sell a bicycle for the price of a you know, uh, BMW. Although I'm sure there are bicycles of that price. But <laughs> but the truth is that we have drugs that prolong life by four weeks that are priced as high as myeloma drugs. So in a sense, a company which makes a myeloma drug could say, you know, I just prolong life. I just double the life of somebody from four years to eight years. And you're fighting with me for the price of my drug. But here are like so many other drugs for cancer, for lung cancer, for pancreatic cancer, for breast cancer that hardly work, and yet they're all charging 100000 150000 a year. So our system is 
where there's no correlation at all whatsoever between the value the drug provides and the price. The price is high for everything. Yeah, and and, uh, it's hard to believe, and it sounds naive, I am naive to some extent about this, that the only thing – kind of the only thing restraining it in the United States, each system, each country has different sets of these constraints, but it's sort of conscience or what you can get away with or yep. – and of course, I'm, again, I, neither of us is suggesting that they're they're um, exploiting people because they're, they're saving lives. It, it, it's extraordinary stuff and it is extraordinarily expensive and the regulatory process is long and arduous and often leads to failure and we understand that the successes have to include the cost of the failures to make the whole thing worthwhile. But then the question is, so let's turn to the question, but what could improve that? Um, I, I have more radical reforms than you do, but let's let's start with yours, which are much more practical than mine. What, what would you do if you were in charge? What would you do to make this better? I think, you know, uh, uh, th- there are several things which are very easy to um, to say, hard to implement, because it does require um, actual changes in laws. Congress has to actually act, change laws for some of the changes to occur. But the number one thing that I would say is, and, and it's been said, I was at a, a couple of years ago, there was a forum uh, at the Department of Health and Human Services where top guys, I was in the audience, but top people in the industry from pharmacy, pharmacy benefit managers to pharmaceutical company executives to, to uh, uh, Andy Slavitt to various people on the same stage. And, and, and people, when they were asked, what's the number one thing that you can do? It was basically Medicare should be able to negotiate the price of drugs. If I'm the buyer, I'm buying, uh, I, I remember that the CEO of um, of uh, Kaiser Permanente Health Group said, you know, I have so many employees and I have uh, so much money that I'm going to use to buy drugs. I would be in a normal situation, be able to say, hey, I'm going to buy a hundred million dollars worth of drug from you. So can you give it to me at this price? The power of Medicare to to bargain on behalf of its citizens for the best price for drugs, uh, you know, you cannot overestimate that. It's it's something very important, and that law has to be changed. If Medicare is going to have to buy for all its citizens important life-saving drugs, they should have a say in what price they'll pay for it. Now, there should be some safeguards because obviously they they can walk away from the negotiation. Uh, but most countries do this. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, and what they do is they they have a benchmark based on value, which is if you prolong life by uh, uh, one year, then your drug can be uh, priced at, say, anywhere from $50,000 to $150,000 a year. And if your drug works only for like one week, then don't come and ask me the same amount of price. And so there's some negotiation that goes on based on some starting point. And I have made the point that since we can think of ourselves as a wealthier nation than Germany or France or any of the other countries, we could have set that limit even three times higher than than what they set. But at least then the pricing will be proportional to value. There'll be some safeguards so that 
you know, uh, Medicare won't ask for unreasonably low prices. Uh, and you can even have a non-governmental panel that's involved in setting the the prices. Other countries have it where the health authorities are different than the people who approve the drugs. And so it'll, it'll be basically empower Medicare to negotiate prices uh, and the price negotiation is revolving around some concept of value. So I'm going to be interviewing, uh, if all goes well, I'm going to be interviewing Jerry Muller soon for an Econ Talk episode on his book, The Tyranny of Metrics. I'm reading the book now, and one of the themes of the book is the surprise unintended consequences sometimes of using metrics. In this particular case, you'd think there's normally wouldn't worry about this. So the normal problem that an economist would raise is, well, what's the incentive of the director of Medicare to be a good negotiator or to be – he could be corrupt – he or she could be corrupted. But you could have a board, like you point out. There are all kinds of ways to solve that challenge. There's still challenges. But one of the challenges would be, I would think, that if the whole value is is extending life, would you worry at all about the possibility that there would be ways of extending life that would be not particularly pleasant – but that would show up as longer life and then therefore would earn you the right to charge more? Would it change the way people did drug discovery? Or is that no. too too cynical? No, actually it won't. But so what they do, um, Russ, in, in, and again, we, I, I always find it very strange that we always want to reinvent the whole wheel when all of the developed countries have figured this out. And so we don't need to, we just need to improve on it. And if we are wealthier, we can give a, give a better deal to all the drug companies. Um, what they do is they they do a quality adjusted life. And this is something that people misunderstand. Patients misunderstand. They think that if if we say value-based pricing or quality adjusted life years or qualities, we are putting a value on somebody's life. It's the opposite. We are only putting a value on what the drug's worth. So for example, if my drug prolongs life by one year and you have absolutely no side effects at all whatsoever, that would be one quality adjusted life year. And generally, the World Health Organization and others say a country should be willing to reimburse for one full year extra life that a drug provides three times GDP. Um, GDP many, per, per, per capita. capita yes. <laughs> and, and so many countries uh, have their own version of how much one quality is. And um, so, for example, um, uh, in Europe, it might be seventy thousand to eighty thousand dollars per quality adjusted life year. So, if you have a new drug, zero side effects, you in, in, increase life by one year. You can you can charge seventy, eighty thousand dollars per year for that drug, and we'll pay for it. Um, and then they work along that. I mean, drug companies negotiate around that price. They may get more or less. Um, I'm saying in the U.S., you can make it two hundred thousand per year if you want. Maybe because we are wealthier. But that's at least some value framework. Now, suppose that same drug makes you feel absolutely miserable. You cannot even get out of bed half the time you're awake. So then I don't say that your drug prolongs life by one year. You, you, it does prolong life by one year, but six months of that one year, you're like a vegetable. You're doing nothing. So the, the metric they use discounted. is a discount. So they'll say your drug really prolongs life only by six months. Because the other six months, we can't really count. So they adjust. It's not a value on a patient's life, but it's the value on the drug. 
That's where the main mistake that patients think that somebody's putting a value on their life. No, what we're doing is we are saying the drug prolongs life by one year, but three months you wish you wouldn't have lived because that's how many side effects you had. Therefore, we are just giving credit only for seven months and we'll pay that drug, not 70,000 per year, but 50,000 because, you know, that 20% was really side effects. So quality adjusted life year uh, is what uh, is used as the metric in all developed countries where the drug price negotiation starts. No one fixes a price. There are unique situations where they will give you twice the amount that they'll give for another drug because maybe it's a rare disease and the company really put a lot of risk in developing the drug. There's no other alternative. So, but that's a starting point of negotiation. And there are people there without conflicts of interest because they, you know, it's, they're all salaried people. They don't have a real reason to, you know, dis pharma or make them go broke. And they really want to help their own citizens. So they try and work out a price. And by and large, they successfully negotiate a price for most life-saving drugs. I mean, all the drugs that we have in the U.S., many of them are available in Europe, maybe later because it took time for them to negotiate. But Velcade's available, Revlimid's available, Daratumumab, Carfilzomib. These are all available because they finally figured out a price that they could all live with. What do they charge in Europe? Um, I don't know, but it's less. It's, Definitely less than the U.S. And of course, one one response to that is, well, that's our market, which is un, unrestrained, is uh, where the drug companies are able to make a lot of their money. And therefore, we're subsidizing patients outside the United States. I think that's true to some extent, especially for the poorest of countries, that if we were relying on negotiated prices there, there maybe would not be as much innovation. But, you know, in some dimension, the United States is this great cash cow for for pharma is is driving innovation for the whole world, right? It's it's our market's profitability. Now, normally what that would do is it would encourage more pharmaceutical companies. But as you point out, the, the, the barriers to entry are quite large. The yes. compliance costs are quite large to, yes. to get approval. So to me, you have to work on all these things. And I would, of course, listeners will know I'd prefer a world where nothing was subsidized through the government or through uh, – through the subsidization of insurance, and rather, I would run to rely on philanthropy and foundations to supply drugs to people in desperate straits who could not financially afford them, and it, that would have its own issues. It's not, that's not even if it worked, it would have some challenges. But the other issue, of course, is just transparency. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to pay attention, so it's hard to know if we move to your to that to the European system here. Uh, and these negotiations took place. You know, I would feel I would feel better about it relative to the current situation for sure. Uh, they're both imperfect, but I think it would be an improvement. But it's it would be I'd be more confident about it if it was a transparent process, and there were a lot of people paying attention. And I think people sometimes forget this. They think, well, it's all public information. Yeah, but if people don't pay attention to it, like your point is, it's a great point about Daraprim, right? Daraprim yeah. still seven hundred fifty or whatever it is dollars instead of a buck fifty, and the people just forgot to be upset about it. <laughs> they just stopped paying attention. It's still public, I think. It's still it's not a secret. Yes. You're not revealing anything. Um, what do you think about the um, what could be done with the FDA here relative to European approval um, to either speed up the process? Yeah, you think I they're think too the, cautious. Yeah, they are. 
Uh, I, they're much less cautious, actually, than Europe uh, in terms, not cautious, I would, that's not the right word. I would say the FDA is actually more liberal in approving drugs than European authorities, which is good for our patients. So we have access sooner. They're willing to take a risk um, based on uh, smaller studies, based on single arm studies for life-threatening diseases. What's arm? Pardon? What's single arm? What's arm standard? Single arm meaning... Um, so uh, if it's a life-saving drug and I don't have a control group and I just gave, you know, 100 patients with this cancer, this drug, and I show the FDA, you know, these patients have very bad cancer that there is no treatment for. I gave my drug to 200 of these patients and in 30 of them, they are better now. And I show proof of that. Rather than insist on, 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 a, on a control trial where you take, you know, 500 patients and 250 get your drug and 250 don't, which will take a longer time to do and more money. The FDA approves the drug based on the fact that this is for cancer. This is a serious disease. There's good proof that the drug works. We'll accept, we'll approve the drug, let it go on the market. That's called accelerated approval. And then the company promises to do the, the control trial subsequently. Um, so it, it, it facilitates the drugs coming earlier on, the mar- earlier on in the U.S. All of the myeloma drugs were available in the U.S. years before what they were in the rest of the world. So the FDA is really good about that. What they need to do, I think, is that they, we need to facilitate the easier entry of generic companies uh, into the U.S. So the first one will be negotiate price and, and value-based pricing, and then the second one would be facilitate competition. Yep. True market competition means uh, you you have, uh, I, I use the example of Poland and, and Gleevec because somebody put it out on Twitter for me as a, to help me out that <laughs> there are 19 versions of Gleevec sold in Poland. If I have only one competitor to Gleevec, I will price it at, at, at about like the airlines, like 90% of the Gleevec price. If I have, uh, you know, like Tylenol in Costco, if I have uh, every store making its version of Tylenol, then the Tylenol price is very, very cheap because there's true competition. I mean, what we need to do is to encourage a lot of generic companies to come establish markets here, prevent big pharma from influencing these generics. Uh, We don't need onerous regulations, you know, uh, exactly, I, I know how the FDA monitors this or what kind of proof they want to say that a generic drug is equivalent. But we should make it just so make it easier. Yeah. Not just for one drug, but make it like the automotive market. You know, I just look, I, I've got a hundred different vehicles that I can choose from and I pick my drug based on cost and whatever else. Um, well, that- that's That's the way we need so that uh, for every drug, cancer drug, where the monopoly protection is ending, uh, we shorten the monopoly protection. We prevent these companies from exploiting the laws to prolong the monopoly protection by lawsuits and paying off generics and all of the things that they've done. But at the same time, make it easier for generics to come in from India, from China, I don't know, from wherever else. Make the drug so that our 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 citizens have access to drugs that are uh, effective, cheap, uh, reasonable cost for society as well as for the patients. And right now, Vincent, you and I are clamoring for that. Yeah. And no one 
and there's tens of thousands of people, maybe 100,000 people hearing this podcast, and they're saying, yeah, that, that's a good idea. But they're not going to take to the streets because they don't pay for it. <laughs> well, they do, but they don't see it. Uh, they don't pay for it directly. They pay for, for it through their higher taxes. And I wonder if when uh, Medicare starts to bankrupt the government of the United States, the budget of the United States, uh, these issues will start to get a little more uh, important. I, I have to think that also the part of the reason is, and I used to hear this from a, from a drug, uh, the CEO of a drug company used to tell me, and, he's, and I'm sure he's right. He's probably still right. He used to say, you know, if you could get the inflation of pharmaceuticals down to uh, zero – and even you could start thinking about if you could give away all drugs for free, the impact on the expenditures of the United States of medical medical expenditures would still be quite small. So any one of these is outrageous, but it's a small part of the whole problem. And um, I think that reduces the incentive to be uh, extra vigilant about it. Yeah. The third solution is that um, I, I really, really think it's important – for because it's it's going to be quite you know to to allow Medicare to negotiate that's a mega law change you have to change the entire Part D law yeah. to 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 allow value based pricing you have to create a whole agency aside from FDA to to evaluate value of the drug what does it provide and and to negotiate around that value you in order to facilitate easy entry of generics would probably again require major changes to FDA regulations. The other one that we should do, and again, also requires changes to existing law, would be re-importation of drugs for personal use. I'm not saying allow me and you to start a company tomorrow that will go to India and buy all of the drugs, come back here and sell it for a low price. I'm saying that if I have cancer and I simply cannot afford the drugs here, uh, allow me to get the drug from somewhere else and and bring it back for my own use. I'm sure that people can do it, but it's still illegal. And so um, if we allow that, then the prices at least of the U.S. Will, will, will be similar to other countries rather than being so much higher than everywhere else. So those are all interesting, I, and I'm sympathetic to all of them, even though they're not my favorite solution. I think a farmer representative – or that person here on the, you know, listening in our conversation would say, those are all lovely, but they're going to take profits out of the pharmaceutical industry. You're going to get less innovation, and therefore you're going to hurt, you're going to hurt human beings. What's your answer to that? I, I, I ask you this question. If you are a pharmaceutical company CEO, and I told you, listen, Russ, you have um, a drug that works for three years. You could just modify that drug slightly, make it slightly less toxic, slightly more, and you get a new patent, another seven years, you have ways in which you can make sure that that drug is the preferred drug. Um, it's very less risky because you already know it's going to win in any trial that you do. Would you do that or would you risk all you have on another brand new out-of-the-box innovation? So what I, my answer is the fact that you can command a high price regardless of value, means that there's really no reason for you to innovate when you can make Me Too drugs all year long and uh, make the same thing. It actually stifles innovation because 
uh, why innovate and take a big risk when you can just modify your existing drug and, and capture the whole market for another seven, 10 years? And uh, it's something very important to recognize because a lot of the big pharmaceutical company drugs that are blockbusters are probably not the result of their own innovation, but they just buy smaller companies which have innovated and they know already that the drug is going to be successful. So you buy it out and, and then you market it. I think it stifles innovation, the fact that they can command a price no matter what the value is. If we tie value to uh, to the price, then you would really innovate because you want to get the 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 uh, 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 bigger reward for the risk that you've taken. It's a superb answer. Um, I, I want to close. We're over time. I just want to close with a quote that you uh, had on Twitter, which I spoke to a, a theme and on this program. It's 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 sort of off topic, but it's sort of not. Uh, and we'll close with that. Mm-hmm. It's about complexity. Uh, and the uncertainty of of our knowledge. You say, you wrote the following, we don't understand the human body like a car mechanic understands the car. They, I think you mean the car mechanic, they can operate on plausibility and reason. No need for randomized control trials. They just know what each part of the car does. We are not even in the same planet. Want to explain that a little bit? Yes. I mean, this is why medicine is so complicated. Um, a, a car mechanic, if they find a, a leak, um, they fix it. They know your car is going to be fine. Um, they know exactly what the problem is as long as you have a good mechanic. We are just guessing. So it's true. Pharma needs to take a big risk because on paper, it looks like this drug should work beautifully. It, it, uh, it targets the exact pathway that causes the drug, uh, the cancer to occur or to grow. And I have a drug that blocks that very pathway. And, you know, in mouse experiments, the cancer just goes away immediately. Um, I've tried it on animals and primates and the, and the cancer disappears. So now you put it into a clinical trial and you'll be surprised. Like, you know, 90% of the drugs don't work. And that's because the human body is complex Going from Rochester to Minneapolis, I could block Highway 52, and I still have probably another 100 different ways of reaching Minneapolis. So you blocked that pathway. Little did you know that there is the cancer cell is so smart, it found another way to do the same thing, and uh, it just bypassed your drug as if it didn't exist. So we are not understanding the whole process of carcinogenesis. The only cancers that we have really cured and or controlled very effectively are a few cancers where there is a real short path from what causes the cancer to the cancer cell, like uh, imatinib or Gleevec for chronic myeloid leukemia. There's one particular translocation that's present in 100% of patients. There's one particular tyrosine kinase that is abnormally expressed. You block it and the cancer goes away. Few cancers are as simple as that. And so... Um, our, our, our entire problem is that uh, we are then having to do complicated studies uh, with large numbers of patients to prove that a drug works, and we are faced with a high failure rate. It, it's There's no denying it's a complex um, problem, and uh, cancer is complex, and cancer is cunning. 
even if you find a drug and it works, as we've seen in myeloma, nine months go by and, and, and the cancer is back. And now we have to find option B and, and then C and D and so on. Well, it reminds me a lot of my favorite quote from Hayek, which I haven't said in a while, so I'm sure listeners have been missing it, which is, the curious task of, ex- of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. He was talking about the economy, um, and public policy, but it's true yes. about medicine and epidemiology and the human body. Yes. My guest today has been Vincent Rajkumar of the Mayo Clinic. Vincent, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you so much, Russ, for having me. It was a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.